So as you've turned to Matthew 19, I add my word of greeting to those you've already heard. And the beautiful name, the wonderful name, the, the name above every name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so happy to worship God with you this morning in this place in Memphis in the middle of the summer through his son Jesus. It's a, it's a very, very, very familiar story. I fear that it's a uh, frequently misunderstood story. <clears throat> I once heard a, a great New Testament scholar say that the words which Jesus spoke to the rich young ruler were the strangest words ever recorded by him. He went on to say that he knew a seminary president <clears throat> who said that when he was teaching through the Bible and, and the, the stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that when he got to the story of the rich young ruler, he felt like he was walking through a graveyard and he needed to quicken his pace and get through it, get by it. And when I heard that, from this bright scholar, I thought, you know, that can't be right. That can't be the way to look at, at this passage. Now, I'm going to read the story. I've, I've, I'm a real primitive today. I'm, I'm going to read from the King James Version, and I'll probably paraphrase it a little bit. As I read, see if you can catch two places in one place, Jesus says something to confound and shock Protestant evangelicals, those who embraced the doctrines of the Reformation. See if you can spot it. At another place, he says something to profound and shock observant Jews of the first century. See if you can spot it. I've realized just in the last couple of years that almost everything Jesus said and almost everything Jesus did was counterintuitive. That is, it was the opposite of what we would normally expect. We don't see it, we don't notice it because we know the stories. We know what's coming next, so it doesn't shock us because we've learned the story since we were children. And so we don't sufficiently gauge the shock value to those who first heard what he said and how they were blown away by it. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more later. I'm going to begin in verse um, 16, and I'm going to read to verse 26. I don't know what your traditions are here, but why not, in honor of God and his word, why don't we stand? Matthew 19, 16. Hear the word of God. Behold, one came to him and said to him, Good master, or good rabbi, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you calling me good? There's none good but one, and that is God. If you will enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
a young man said to him, all these I've kept from my youth up. Now, if you're using a, a, a newer version, which probably you are, it doesn't say from my youth up because that's not in the oldest manuscripts. The King James uses uh, a majority of the manuscripts, but not, not the oldest manuscripts tradition. However, Luke reports the same words, and that is in the oldest manuscript that, uh, that we translate Luke from. So Jesus did say that, but it's probably not in your version if you're using a more recent version in that place in verse 20. Uh, all these things I have kept from my youth up, what lack I yet? What, is there anything else? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you have, give to the poor, you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Now that's not our favorite verse, is it? When the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven, shall only with difficulty enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Heavenly Father, show us what it means. Show us why it matters. And change us thereby, by this potent, transformative force called the Word of God. For we ask it in the name of the Son of God, your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I want to say as many good things as I can about this young man, because um, I'm going to rip him pretty mercilessly in a minute. But there are many good things we can say about him. He is, um, he's asking the most important question that can be asked, and he's asking it as a young man, and he's asking it as a rich man. There's nothing that encourages, to, encourages us more to postpone the most urgent question than youth. When it seems like, well, this is something I may have to think about in, in the distant future, but, but not right now. There's also nothing that dulls our sense of need more than riches. Because... I'm going to indict pastors as well as businessmen, okay? Most, most people who try to make a living in the secular world, if they've got a lot of money, or if they're making a lot of money, it's extremely difficult to convince them that they may be lead, leading lives displeasing to God. Because money is their gauge of God's approval. God must think I'm a swell fellow because look at all he's given me. That's very human, and it's very wrong, but it's, it's understandable. And I'll just tell you that if a pastor has a large ministry, or anybody in ministry, you don't have to be a pastor, has a large ministry or a growing ministry, it's almost impossible to make him think that he could be doing things in his ministry displeasing to God. 
because that's his gauge, that's his measure. That's how he figures it out. And that's very, very wrong. So it's a wonderful thing for this young, rich man to be concerned about his soul, to be concerned about eternal and mortal issues. When we get older, we think more and more about those issues. I mean, we, I mean I'm well past the age where people are, are starting to die in my generation where I started to notice, hey, that, he was in my class, or hey, he was 10 years younger than I am, and he's gone. So the older we get, the more we think about that. But it doesn't, it doesn't occur to us when we're young. It ought to, because young people die too. But it's a difficult thing to think about. He's thinking about it. He's asking the greatest question, the most important question. You know, every day, the gospel is the most important thing. Every day of our lives. The day we graduate from high school or the day we graduate from university, the gospel is the most important thing. The day we fall in love, the gospel is the most important thing. The day we ask the one we love to marry us, the day she says yes, or the day she says I will, and we say I will too, we go off on our honeymoon. The gospel is the most important thing that day, though we don't realize it. On the day we die, the gospel is the only thing. It's not the most, just the most important thing. It's the only thing. And we will realize it then. So let's bless him and salute him in verse 16 for asking the most important question. Jesus' response is a little bit mysterious. I'd love to dwell on it, but I don't want to focus on that. It's a wonderful uh, invitation to explore. What did Jesus mean when he said, why are you calling me good? I may refer to it in a minute, but we're not going to go deep in it. There, there's only one good, and that's God. Matthew Henry said, there is no, no one essentially, originally, and unchangeably good except for God. Did you get that? There's, there's no one essentially, originally, and unchangeably good except for God. A Bible teacher died in 1714, wrote that. And he said, wherever we may find good in its tributaries and streams, the fountain and the source of good is always to be found in God. All goodness is from God. All goodness is of God. Now, one reason we're not going to dwell on it is because Jesus doesn't dwell on it. He doesn't wait for an answer. He just, he, he says, why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that's God. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. How many of you spotted the thing that Jesus said, which would be shocking to Protestant evangelicals? How many people spotted it? I'm giving you a pretty big hint right here, aren't I? by asking the question at this point? I mean, my goodness, if a thoroughly informed Christian who was reformed in the conviction, in his convictions, if somebody says, how do we uh, gain eternal life? You take him straight to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves is not a result of work so that no one could boast. Nothing you can do. 
we take him straight to, to, to Romans 4 or 5. To, to him that worketh not. Titus 3. John 1, 12 and 13. I mean, all these grace verses. Romans 3, 24 and 25. I mean, we're going to take him straight to those verses and say, forget about works, forget about anything you do for God. Giving you eternal life. Now, Jesus doesn't do that. And this, by the way, is why the New Testament scholar said it was strange. And this is why the seminary president said, I want to get by this because this makes me uncomfortable. And hey, there are a lot of professing Christians in the world who insist that there must be a mingling of works if we're going to be saved. And they have their verses. Not only in James 2, but in Romans 2. And not only in Romans 2, but in Matthew 19. If, if I'm one of those Christians who says, well, you know, there's there got to be works in there. It's not sola gratia. It's not all grace. I'm going to take him right here. I'm going to say, Jesus said, keep the commandments. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, we reformed folk, well, did Luther and Calvin get it wrong? Was the Reformation misguided? Now, when you and I first learn to witness, and I hope we're, we've learned, and I hope we're still learning, and we're still interested in how do we do that, how do we talk about salvation with someone who doesn't know Jesus savingly yet, we usually are taught to memorize an outline, and we follow that outline. It may be the four law booklet. Have you ever heard of the four spiritual laws? It may be the evangelism explosion. Um, presentation out of Coral Ridge near Fort Lauderdale. Um, if you were to die tonight, do you know for sure you'd get to heaven? What would you tell God if he asked you why he should let you into his heaven? And we, we stick to that outline. It may be another gospel presentation. And that's great, and that's necessary, especially when we first become believers, because if we're not taught an outline, we may leave something out. Or we may say something heretical if we freelance when we're young Christians. So we memorize these ways of presenting the gospel, and we, and we try to stick to the text and, and get it out there. But Jesus never does that. He never does that. It's always very, very individual, focused on the specificities and the peculiarities of the person he's sharing with. It's always different. And as we grow as believers, as I hope we will, as we, as we grow in maturity, we will grow to be more like Jesus in the way we share the gospel with people. And it won't be this rote, canned outline. We will listen, we will diagnose. And what we see in Matthew 19 is the supreme unerring spiritual diagnostician. He unerringly diagnoses the boy's spiritual pathology and he begins the therapy immediately. He begins to dispense the specific remedy to cure this boy's spiritual sickness. And it's overwhelming. And I'll just say this, as somebody who studied theology all my adult life, 
Nobody in his early 30s could have done this unless he was the Son of God. Nobody could have saw what Jesus saw in that boy, did what Jesus did for that boy, who was just a, a young rabbinical student or a young rabbi in his early 30s. Nobody could have done it but Jesus. Once we realize what he did and how he did it, it's overwhelming. And what the Lord did was this. Oh, so... Um, you want to know what you have to do to be sure you're going to go to heaven. Is that it? Okay. I'll walk with you down that road. Let's see where that road leads. If you want eternal life, keep the commandments. Now, some of you will know that there are more than 10 commandments. There's 613 commandments. And the young man says, which ones? Now, he, don't want to, he doesn't want to do anything unnecessary. I mean, he doesn't, want to do some, he doesn't want to do something he doesn't have to do. If he can get into heaven by doing less, he certainly doesn't want to do more. So he says, which ones? It's interesting, Jesus doesn't say all of them. Uh, Jesus names, well, let's count them. Thou should do no... Murder, that's one. Thou shalt not commit adultery, that's two. Thou shalt not steal, that's three. Thou shalt not bear false witness, that's four. Honor thy father and thy mother, that's five. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So he named six commandments. The key to understanding this passage, there are actually two keys, is to note which commandments Jesus emphasized. Bible teachers, most of you know this, when they talk about the Ten Commandments, they talk about the two tables. The first table tells us about our responsibilities to God. The second table tells us about our responsibilities to others. Every commandment Jesus names is from the first is from the second table. Now, when Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment, he shared the verse that is the summary of the first table from Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And the second command is likened to it. Then he shares the verse which is the summary of the second table, Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here's what Jesus does. He cites five verses from the second table, and then he mentions a verse that's not in the Ten Commandments, but it is rather, Leviticus 19.18, the summary of the second table of the Ten Commandments. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then the young man says, well, I've always done it. I've done, I've done all that since I was a kid. The law of God is child's play. I, I mean, I, I've done all that since I was a young boy. Really? 
you've loved your neighbor just as much as you love yourself since you were a child? Have you ever seen a child share without being forced to share? But you're different. Since you were a child, you've always loved your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, if I love Mike as much as I love myself, it doesn't matter if I give Mike my money. That's my life savings. Take care of it. Uh, you know, um, here, credit cards. Mike, you can have that. Yeah, you can have that too that's on the floor. Uh, <clears throat> see how organized I am. You know, it doesn't matter whether Mike has it or whether I have it because I love Mike. I'm just as concerned about Mike as I am myself. So with the Lord, with the Lord, it's just an illustration, Mike. Okay. All right. All right. So, so what the Lord says is, well, if you, if you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, and that's always been true of you, it's not going to be, it's not going to be any problem at all for you to give everything you have to your neighbor. That's going to be child's play for you because. You're already in gear. You're already in motion. You're on that path anyway. So, hey, man, this is easy peasy. All right, let's talk about it a minute. Um, first of all, I know you're getting nervous because the great question is, does Jesus want me to do this? I don't view this as a great requirement. I view this as a great offer. If Jesus said, give everything away, sell everything, give the proceeds to the poor, and go home, it, that would be a great requirement. I'd say, well, according to you, I'm not having home to go to. Where am I supposed to go if I sell my house and give the proceeds to the poor? That's not what Jesus says. He says, sell everything you have, give the proceeds away, and come and follow me. What does that mean? That means I'm going to take care of all your needs. You can live with me. I'll handle the expenses. I'll handle the retirement. You never have any financial problems. Because I'm going to take over that part of your life. Now, we've got to ask ourselves a question. I, I remember very well the morning after the little crash. It was only 500 points, but that was a lot in 1987. In October 1987, I walked into my bank in Munich right after uh, the stock market crashed, and, and, a, and a very frightened Frau Buchel looked at me and said, Mr. Stevens, how did the stock market crash affect you? I said, Frau Buchel, do you remember that Bob Dylan song, 1965, Like a Rolling Stone? She said, yes, I do. I said, you remember that line, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose? <laughs> she said, yes, I do. I said, that's how the crash affected me, Frau Buchel. She said, oh, I see. Now, in 2008, I had a little bit, not much, but a little bit. And I remember my financial advisor. Can you imagine me having a financial advisor? Gosh, I feel sorry for that guy. It's kind of like being Hugh Hefner's chaplain, okay? <laughs> I, 
I looked at him, and I, he looked at me, and he said, you lost 40%. And I thought, dang. And I, I wasn't disappointed in him. I, I was disappointed in myself. I thought, you know, if you paid more attention to this stuff, you wouldn't have lost 40%. I was at a dinner party that Christmas, and the wife of the richest man that I know well, apropos of nothing, I don't know why she told me. She looked at me at the table. She said, we lost 40%. And I'm thinking, well, golly, he takes care of his money. He knows what to do with his money. If he lost 40%, then maybe if I'd done everything, I would have still lost 40%. You know, there's another little downturn in 2010, and we lose a little more, you know. Well, here's the question. Who do you want to protect your assets? Whose assets... Whose hands do you want your assets in? You want to you keep them in your hands? Are you sure you can protect your assets? You know, a, a, a rising tide lifts all vessels. And sometimes when the economy goes up, we feel really smart. But we don't really realize, well, you know, everybody's doing better. It may not have anything to do with us. It may have to do with the tide. It may have to do with the boat we're in. It may have to do with the country we live in. I remember walking with one of the smartest, wisest, most impressive men I've ever known in Bucharest, pastor of a Baptist church called Kalosh, and I'd known him for years, but I'd never been to his home, and this is before the fall of communism, and we're walking up the stairs to his flat because the elevator didn't work, and I could tell how embarrassed he was because everything was so shabby. And he, and he turned and he looked at me and he said, my country is not a poor country. My country has poor leadership. And there are brilliant and worthy and gifted people who live in countries where the economic system doesn't work or who live in countries where the leaders steal everything and they can't get the just fruit of their labor. But the question is, who do we want to protect our assets? And our greatest asset is our health, isn't it? and our families. Our money should be a distant third. Who do we want to protect that? Do we want to protect that, or do we want the Lord to protect that? And let me, let me ask the question behind all this. Do you have to give up everything in order to gain eternal life? Well, I hope not. Because if we do, almost 100% of all evangelicals are going to hell. I don't think that's what this passage means. In order to be saved, we need to tell the Lord that we're miserable sinners. And we can't give up what he wants us to give up. That's what sin is. But he who was not a sinner, he gave up everything for us. So we're trusting in his righteousness to save our souls and bring us into eternal life. That's where it starts. Do we have to give up everything to be a Christ follower, to be a disciple? No. You only have to give up one thing. You have to give up the right to decide. You have to give up the right to decide what you keep. Let me, be, let me, let me make it harder. 
The only thing you have to give up is the thing you won't give up. You want to be a disciple, if you want to be a Christ follower, you have to give up the thing that you won't give up. Now, I said, I said it wasn't a great requirement, it was a great offer. You know, when the Gadarene demoniac was newly freed, clothed in his right mind, he said, can I go with you? Jesus said, no, you got to stay here. you got to stay here among these wretches who love pigs more than men. Because if you go with me, in two weeks they'll say it never happened. But if you live among them, they'll always know that you are a trophy of my grace and power. They'll always be reminded of that. So no, you can't go with it. But to this man, he says, come on and go with me. It's a great offer. And, and you know what? I said a, nearly 100% of evangelicals would be lost. I'm going to be nicer to you. And maybe I'm going to overestimate you, and maybe I'm going to overestimate me. Uh, you've got to be a little ways down the road in, in discipleship, or you wouldn't get up early and come out here to study the Bible. And you know what? Maybe I'm overestimating you, and maybe I'm overestimating me. But if it was the Lord Jesus Christ, and if we knew we'd get to go with him, I think we'd sell out. And I think we'd give it away. I may be radically overestimating every one of us, but if it was Jesus, I think a lot of us would do it. Because he doesn't just say, give everything away. He said, give everything away and come and receive what is mine. See, do you want what's yours? Or do you want what's his? And by the way, if you see a text like this and it makes you nervous and, and what you think is, oh my goodness, what if, what if he wants to take something I don't want to give him? Let me tell you how to grow up. Let me tell you how to start making some progress in the Christian faith. Just say this prayer. You know, you get a sinner's prayer. Let me give you a disciple's prayer. Let me give you a follower's prayer. Say this prayer to God before you eat your next meal. Lord, I'm in such a low state of Christianity that I'm concerned that Jesus may want to take from me something that I want to keep. Lord, please shift my concern. Lord, make me worry that I might want to keep something he wants to take. Just pray that prayer and see what he does. And let me tell you something. If you cling to something he asks you to give over to him, you'd be safer if you held on to an unpinned grenade. He doesn't want you to give it to him because it's dangerous to give it away. He wants you to give it to him because it's dangerous to keep it. It's not for his good. He owns everything. It's for your good. It's not so he can become richer. It's so we can begin to know what it is to be rich by owning nothing except for everything that Christ has and everything that Christ wants to give us. Now, the young man went away sorrowing. Um, so what did Jesus prove to him? You know what? Not only can you not keep all the commandments, 
you can't even keep one commandment. And by the way, Jesus named six commandments. Did you catch the fact that, that the young man broke one of the commandments that Jesus named? Actually, he broke one of the Ten Commandments in the answer he gave. He broke one of the commandments in front of Jesus out loud in public. Did you notice which one it was? Did you notice it? Right, you got it. Thou shalt not bear false witness. He bore false witness. He said he'd kept all 613 commandments since he'd been, been born. He bore false witness. So what Jesus is showing him, well, if you can keep all the commandments, let me give you a commandment. Give everything away and come follow me. And he went away sorry because he couldn't keep that commandment. And man, not only can you not keep all the commandments, you can't even keep one commandment. You know that's also true about me. Not only can I not keep all the commandments, I can't keep any of the commandments unaided by grace. And neither can you. Now, Jesus said, you know, uh, it's really, really hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. As a matter of fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich, for a rich man to get into heaven. Okay, who found the thing that would have stunned first century Jews? I mean, here it is. They thought that riches was a reward for godliness. They thought, see, they had the same measure that contemporary people have. They think, well, God must really love that man. Look how rich he is. Boy, he must really be pleasing God. And Jesus said, you know, it's really not like that. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite because those riches get in the way. Those riches make it very difficult to depend on God. And you see, we men, this is so hard for us because everything we do in our professional lives, in our working lives, we want to get in the position of the rich fool. We want to pile it up so high that now we can relax and enjoy life because we've got so much laid by. That's where we want to be, isn't it? We don't want to be where the rich fool was on the day he died. But we kind of like to be where the rich fool is by the time we retire, and the earlier the better. And what we overlook is that God always takes his darlings to a place of dependence. Why do we work? So we can be independent. So we won't have to depend on anyone, including God. God doesn't like that. God calls Abram from a place where he's rich and takes him to a place where there's a famine. Did you ever notice that? He does that with one family. Then in the generation of Moses, he takes three million people out of Egypt where they feed them every day to a place where there's not only no food, but there's no water. Why did he do that? To teach them dependence. To teach them to look to him. Now, if there's one thing we don't want to learn is dependence. We want to be independent. Let's admit it. We do. That's why we work. That's why we plan. That's why we invest. That's why we save. But we have to understand that if we leave God out of it, 
It's an act of folly to build our lives on that. Now, here's the other key. The first key to understanding this is to know that he only gave examples from the second table, and then he summarized the second table. And he was proving to the young man, no, you can't even keep one commandment. You can't even keep from lying when I ask you the question. You can't even keep from breaking one of the Ten Commandments when you answer the question. But here's a key. By the way, I have to ask you this. Many of you have been around Bible teaching for years. Have you ever heard anybody say that there was a gate in Jerusalem that was very low and that uh, a camel couldn't go through it unless he kneeled and took everything that was off his back. Raise your hand if you've heard that. Look at that. That's probably a good third. Not true. It's not true. How could, something, how could something like that be made up? Well, two reasons. We don't want to offend the rich, and we don't want to do it. So we figured out a way to get around that. Here's a key that's often missed. When his disciples heard it, when the disciples say it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, verse 24, they say to him, who then can be saved? Here's the key. They don't ask how can a rich man be saved? They ask, how can anybody be saved? And Jesus said, you know what? With men, it's impossible. Rich man, poor man, man, woman, boy, girl, young, old, religious, irreligious. It's impossible. It's only possible with God. It's only possible if God intervenes. It's only possible if God takes over. It's only possible if God initiates. Not only initiates, but finishes. You know what that is? That's a vindication of Reformed theology. What's he teaching? He's teaching, you can't keep all the commandments. You can't even keep one commandment. And by the way, he is, and this is another great thing about the young man, and this is the reason he called Jesus good, and this is the reason it was right that he called Jesus good, because it's true that only God is good, and it's true that only Jesus is God among humans. God, the second person, became human. So there's only been one human who was good. And Jesus is the arbiter of this question. Muhammad doesn't decide who gets saved. Buddha doesn't decide who gets saved. Joseph Smith doesn't decide who gets saved. Jesus decides who gets saved. And he says, with men it's impossible. This is why I say, and my wife doesn't like it when I say this, but she says, you know, people can misunderstand this. This is why I nearly always say the Christian life is not hard. The Christian life is impossible. Only one person has ever lived the Christian life. 
Only one person can ever live the Christian life again. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so we cast ourselves upon him. And we say, you know what? I can't keep the commandment. Not only can I not keep the commandment to give everything away and give the proceeds to the poor, I can't even keep the commandment to love my wife, much less love my enemies. How am I going to love my enemies? I can't even love my wife unless you help me. Christ did something for us so he could do something in us, so he could do something through us. And what he does is he keeps the commandments of God from inside of us, and we're able to obey those commandments because we look to him by faith and we depend upon absolutely, and we say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, not I, but Christ. Let me say this near the close. One reason we know that the stories are not made up is because if they were made up, they'd be made up a different way. The Jews hated the Gentiles. They hated the Roman occupiers more than the normal Gentiles. And as soon as he was done proclaiming his program, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and Matthew 8, Jesus points to a Gentile, a Roman centurion, an occupier, and he says, there isn't any Jew in Israel that has as much faith as this Gentile. Now, if you're trying to sell your program to Israel, that's not the way to do it. And there was another group of people that the Jews hated more than the Gentiles, and that was the Samaritans. One of the two most famous stories in the history of the world, one of his two most famous parables, the villain is the priest and the scribe, the two most venerated categories in Jewish society. The hero is the good Samaritan. The priest and the scribe are bad. The Samaritan is good. Is he trying to fashion a narrative that will be appealing, that will be palatable? For the last 150 years, scholars have pretty much maintained the consensus that Mark was written first until recently. Now there's a growing number of scholars who believe Matthew was written first. Well, he certainly wrote 25% of the Gospels. Can you imagine if they're conspiring, if they're contriving, if they're making things up, if they're not telling the truth? Can you imagine saying, well, Matthew, you're a tax collector. You're the most despised person in our society. Why don't you go first? Why don't you write the Gospel to the Jews? Isn't that a great idea? You see what I mean by counterintuitive? This man is a ruler. He's probably on the Sanhedrin. He's probably, in the, not like Nicodemus, one of the minority Pharisees on the Sanhedrin because the Sadducees never really believed in the afterlife. He's worried about the afterlife, so he's probably a Pharisee. He goes home sorrowing the imminent in society. 
On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus passes through Jericho. He's on his way to the cross. It's Luke 19. He publicly calls a tax collector down from a tree so that everybody sees the tax collector, everybody sees Jesus stop, everybody sees Jesus call his name, call him out. And he goes home with the tax collector, and the tax collector is rejoicing. Why does he say to the rich young ruler, you got to give everything away? Because he didn't get it. Why does he say to Zacchaeus, who says, I'm going to give away, I'm going to give back four times what I stole? Jesus said, that's fine. That'll work. Good man. Let's go have lunch. Well, why did the, why did the rich young ruler have to give away everything? And Zacchaeus just had to give back four times what he stole. Because Zacchaeus got it. Because he understood the principle of grace. He would only give him back exactly what he'd stolen if he was dealing in law. He knew he'd been forgiven. And he knew, that he, needed to, he, he knew he needed to be gracious to those whom he sinned against. And Jesus said, that's fine. And Jesus, to the end, was publicizing his love and concern for the people that they hated. You think that was made up? It really happened. How could he do such a thing? How could he be so insensitive to public opinion? How could he be so different from the other Jews? Because he's the Son of God. And he can be trusted with everything you own and everything I own. Instead of worrying, that he might ask us for something we don't want to give up. We need to say, Lord, teach me to be a steward and not an owner. And let me give you as much as I can as soon as I can. That I may know the joy of those who've entered into your inheritance by giving up my inheritance. God bless you. I hope the rest of your day is productive. Thanks for coming out. See you soon.